Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my Sunday School classmate, our executive producer, and my friend, Kate Oliveira. Kate. Hi, J.D. What's doing? <laughs> oh, we never determined what, how to respond to that. Well, oh, what's do- it, it doing? No, it was how do. How do. How do. What is the, I don't know what the proper response to what's doing either. I would just say nothing. <laughs> yeah, not right nothing, nothing doing. But how do. I do just fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think we did actually solve how this last week. How do is, I think, the um, uh, origins of the. I think howdy. How do you I do? Think, yeah, how do you do? I think howdy is a. How is do you a, do? Is a, yeah, kind of abbreviated form oh, of that. Oh, okay. We're yeah. just doing some American linguistic historical critical methodology right now, am I right? <laughs> okay, really? we are joined by our Sunday school teacher and, uh, and scripture scholar extraordinaire, um, Scott. Yes, thank you, Doctor <laughs> Scott Powell. Did you forget? Scott? No, I was going to try to. I was going to try to come up with like a, you know. Yeah, I do. The man who spent three days in the belly of a whale and lived to tell about it, <laughs> Doctor Scott Powell. Scott, Jonah's the worst. Jonah's, Jonah's a, what does that mean? Jonah's a jerk. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I don't want to get. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to totally. scandalize our listeners. No, totally. I mean, he ran away he, from God and. But everything. The, even as the book ends, he's just mad. He, the book ends with him just being mad. Nineveh didn't get destroyed. The yeah. end. But I thought Nineveh did get destroyed. I thought they recounted the destruction of Nineveh in the in the hundreds of years in, later. In the poet, in hundreds the prophet Nahum. <laughs> Nahum. Yeah, hundreds of years uh, later. Isn't Nahum an acrostic po in a long a series of acrostic poems about the destruction of Nineveh? Is is Nahum that? I believe it is, my friend. Uh, it could be. Okay, it's not I'm just fresh. Saying, it's not that I know a lot about the Bible. It's that I had dinner with a guy the other day who knows a lot about the Bible. He told me that fun fact. I just don't have Nahum fresh on my mind. That's fine, actually, because this is the final episode of our uh, Sunday school season on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans, which I have enjoyed thoroughly. So what we're going to do, we have a lot to do in this episode, Scott. you got to stop clowning around. What we're going to do in this episode is we are going to talk about Romans 12 and 13 in the first half of this episode. Then we're going to take a little break, and then we will uh, come back with um, questions and answers in a section we're calling questions and answers. <laughs> Where are we going on the break? <sighs> We've never had we'll a break before. We'll just have some intermission music. Yeah, I'll just throw right. something just, in there. Yeah, I need some chai is what it is. Okay. So I don't know what that is. That's uh, elevator music. Oh, okay. I've never been... Never been in, that elevator. <laughs> in an elevator. <laughs> I've been in an elevator, but I've never heard that. Okay, listen, uh, we need to get serious here. And uh, here is the Pillar Zone, Ed Condon with Romans 12 and 13. And as always, you can skip the readings by jumping ahead to the 735 mark in this episode. That's 735. Here's Ed. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires.
So we are, I mean, Romans 12 and 13 are not the end of the scripture, but they are for us. We started this podcast with Romans 14, 15, and 16, because you wanted to sort of set the scene for the letter, what St. Paul was doing, what he was accomplishing. So now here in 12 and 13, these are the last substantive texts that we're taking a look at. And so Scott, take us into the scripture. Yeah. So again, remember what what's the, the reason we started with the last three chapters was because this is an extraordinarily long letter, and mm-hmm. it's really easy as you're going through an extraordinarily long letter to lose track of where you are and what the whole point of the thing was to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah. So as Catholics, we don't believe that this is just a big theological compendium. Right. right? This is actually a pastoral letter mm-hmm. to p- dealing with a church with actual real problems. Yeah. And the problem at hand, um, one of the problems is that the Jewish and Gentile believers in the Church of Rome are at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's a really polite way of saying it. They're they're fighting with each other. There's a great disdain. They're arguing over who ought to be in charge, who is sort of superior and inferior to whom. And so Paul writes this long letter about the integrity of God and the fact that you guys are stuck together in the church has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. This is how the scriptures have meant to play the story out, which is really beautifully done. So it's, it's in 14, 15, 16 that he gives the kind of so what, the applications. He kind of starts giving the applications in 12 and 13, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the section of the book that we kind of classify as the the so what. But the, you know, the, the very tangible ethnic realities really, I think, come up in 14 and 15, which is why I wanted to start there. Okay. So this is a, a fitting enough place to end. Um, and there's a couple of things that kind of stick out. They're, they're fairly straightforward chapters. There's not a ton we need to unpack here. There's one thing that I do want to kind of note because there's a passage in chapter 13 that I think gets used and misused an awful lot. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. But let's let's see what he says in chapter 12. Um, I, I mentioned this last week, I think, that uh, chapters 9 and 11, the section where he talks about, okay, now what do we do about Israel? What what if, if God's going to be faithful in all these things, if this really is his faithfulness to his covenant promises, well, what about the people of God who've not believed in the Messiah? What about those who've broken off? So he goes into that uh, in a very deep, a very grief-filled way in chapters 9 through 11. Some people, remember I mentioned, think this is almost an aside because you can kind of pick up chapter 8 into chapter 12 pretty cleanly. It's not an aside. I mean, it is the logical conclusion. But where he picks back up in chapter 12, it's like, okay, let's let's kind of wrap it up. He's trying to bring the plane in. But he does say some, some pretty substantive things. He says chapter 12... Verse one, I appeal to you, therefore, and the therefore always implies that something important came before it, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have a therefore unless you ask, what is it? Therefore. Because right. in, in uh, Romans 11 was this um, reflection on God's mercy and, yeah. yeah. An and olive tree. The olive tree metaphor. Right. And, and at the tail end of the olive tree metaphor was basically the conclusion of why does God do things the way that he does? No one knows. Nobody knows. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in a certain sense. Yeah. It, and it's it's the Job response. I think embedded in this is the book of Job, where God's response to Job of like, why am I suffering? Why are all these things happening? Like, kind of none of your business. Yeah. How inscrutable are God's ways? Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that God is irrational and we can't figure it. it. God doesn't want to be known. It's not that. I think we can swing the pendulum too far that way. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what God is saying. But there's certain things that are still going to be left mysterious to us. Yeah. We don't know how the people of Israel, we don't know what God has yet to do with the people of Israel. That's kind of the, one of the places he concluded. So 
Therefore, not exactly knowing how God is going to play this all out in the end, I appeal to you, brethren, here and now, because we're not in the future yet, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, yourselves, as a living sacrifice. So again, he's now sort of returning to liturgical language, talking about a very liturgical people, the people of Israel, and how now you are all Israel, which means you are a liturgical people. Now you are the sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So don't be conformed to the world. Because one of the problems in Rome is that they're falling into the thinking of the world, the same kind of divisions, the same splits, the nitpicking, the, the power eth- grabbing, the like, power grabbing, yeah. yeah, usurping, ethnic fighting that the world falls into. That's mm-hmm. what you look like. And, and I think if Paul could say anything to the church in Rome, it's like, you guys look like the rest of the world. You look like the rest of Rome. And that's not befitting to the church to look like the rest of the world. I think we might say that to believers today in some yeah. sense. So this is this is important. Yeah. Uh, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed, however, by the renewal of your mind so that you may know what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So by the grace given to me, I bid every one of you. And so now, okay, so what do you do? So we gave kind of the high lofty theology. This is who you are. This is how you to present yourself. What should that look like in the practical day to day? For by the grace given to me, I bid every one among you not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think. Which again, that's nice pastoral advice in general. But it's more specific advice if you know what Rome is dealing with, yeah. right? Yeah. This, is, this is a very pointed comment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are thinking of some more than they ought. Um, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. Remember, mm-hmm. he's talked about the measure of faith that each of them have. And both of them have kind of blown it in a lot of ways. For as in one body we have many members, and so all the members uh, do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, if you're teaching, go teach. If you exhort in your exhortation, if you contribute to your liberality, and if you aid with zeal, uh, and he who does acts of mercy, do them with cheerfulness. And again, we're speaking to a group of people that's fighting over roles and vocations and jobs and tasks and duties in the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, it's good advice in general. That's a nice thing to say to your parish, but it is specifically what they're fighting against. Okay. Um, and now we get to where kind of the rubber meets the road. This is exactly what segues into chapter 13. And oftentimes, and we'll get there in a second, people read 13 as though it's in a void and they want to cherry pick it and misuse it without reading what comes before it. And what comes before it is this. Let your love be genuine. So we just exhorted them to love. Let it be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in your zeal. Be aglow with the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in your tribulations. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. The saints, hagios just means the holy ones, the, the believers. Bless those who persecute you. Who persecutes them? The Romans. the Romans and and each other and each other each right other. right so there's a couple layers to this again yeah. it's a nice verse that you probably even heard before right yeah. but if you remember the context you're like oh that hits different yeah. and yeah. he wants it to hit a little different they each other and the Romans because they're under the nose of Rome yeah bless and do not curse them so he sounds awful a lot, awful lot like Jesus in the Gospels right rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another don't be haughty associate with the lowly never be conceited repay no one evil for evil even the Romans but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. 
And then he says, this is the last part that's very important. If uh, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay it, says the Lord. Now, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love the heaping burning hot coals. Why? Because what does your enemy want you to do? To fight back. Fight him back. He says, don't do that. Heap the burning hot coals of kindness on your enemy. Mm -hmm. Be that one another in the church, your enemy in the pew across from you, or the pastor that you can't stand who's giving the homily. And again, I'm not speaking to you, JD, but like in the congregation of Rome, like this is a real thing. I just suddenly find myself so suspicious of your persistent kindness towards me. Yeah. (laughs) Is it friendship? Nothing that can be done about that. that. (laughs) So that is the context. So that is the extraordinary context is uh, of um of the beginning of chapter 13. I think so. And so in 13, and again, this is, I, I sometimes call it one of America's great prop Bible verses because we hold it out as like a prop when we see fit. 13.1, let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been established by God. We like to weaponize this verse. Mm-hmm. We like to weaponize this verse when it comes to politics. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you guys have experienced this or not. I don't see it as much in Catholic circles as I do in broader Christian circles, but it does exist out there. But the first time I can point to this sort of being really used in our country was during the Revolutionary War when the patriots and the revolutionaries were wanting to fight against the British crown. And the loyalists to the British crown were like, Romans 13, 13. dude, like God established this. And if God established this, you're sinning against Romans 13 if you rebel against the British crown. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, it continued, it was used against slavery. Like, this is the way that God established it. Who are you to kind of fight against this? It was used against Jim Crow or to, in, in um, support of Jim Crow. Like, mm. it's been used in all sorts wow. of ways. I actually heard that it used wild. recently. Yeah. And again, I'm, I don't want to make anybody mad here, but I heard it used simultaneously. Oh, Scott, we used to make people mad, don't worry. No, not Sunday school yet. Fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll get but there. I heard it used uh, during the whole Black Lives Matter things. Like, you know, the police are there. Like, so who are you to resist these things? Oh, Stop fighting the government. Ha- that the police are um, Yeah, the authority subject given authorities by God. given yeah, by God. Yeah. And I simultaneously heard it used by the other kind of political side with mask mandates. Mm. And like, listen to the government. Oh, it's here you for your good. You have to wear a mask because the government exists from God. Again, I don't think it's used yeah. as much as it was maybe a couple decades ago. Yeah, because probably scripture has less cu- cultural. Probably yeah, so. Yeah. But you do see this kind of trotted out from time to time. Yeah. Because what it does sound like what Paul is saying is, dude, you guys, the government's good. Listen to the government. Be cool with the government. Do whatever they say because God has established it. Which is a little surprising because um, old Christians of the first century weren't having such a great time with uh, old Nero there. Well, you know, there are some biblical scholars who I 100% disagree with. Yeah. That actually think that Paul was so naive as to think, because remember, this is the beginning of Nero's reign. Uh And at the beginning of his reign, he was as benevolent as he would become horrifying later on. And some people are like, well, you know, maybe this is our chance, like to kind of get in good with the emperor. And they finally let us come back to Rome now. Uh And like, guys, be cool. Like, you know, get on Caesar's good side kind of a thing, which one of the things that's problematic when people cherry pick Bible passages is that we want, so here, for example, we want Paul to be saying everything all at once. Yeah. Paul's not saying everything all at once. He's not giving you all of his thoughts on government and right. all of his thoughts on law and just yeah, law. This is, again, this is not a treatise on government. It's not a treatise on government. Yeah. And Paul, be subject to the governing authorities. Where is Paul usually when we meet him in his letters? Jail. jail. In jail for doing what? 
preaching the gospel in insubordination. Insubordination to the Roman government. Yeah. So he doesn't seem to care about this when, yeah. when it suits that's him. That's a good point. Yeah. He's even yeah. escaping from prison. He's not yeah, even subordinate right. when they put him in prison. If an right. angel lets you out, he hightails he it goes. out of there. That's right. Right. So that's where we have to kind of take this in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, like that's a Paul's good point. not saying follow lockstep with your government. Right. That's exactly. obviously not the case. But is Paul saying that the authority of a government is derived from God? And if so, which governments? I mean, this just creates a whole set of problems. Well, here's what I think he's saying. And again, he's not going to say all everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's just not. And there's a lot of things I just don't know what Paul would have to say. But what has he done previously in the book? Do you remember in the previous couple chapters, he kept turning us back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how all in all sorts of ways in the Old Testament, God does the unexpected. Sometimes he uses younger brothers to be in charge of older brothers. Sometimes he uses pagan yeah. emperors like Pharaoh and Cyrus the Persian, who yeah. you were big on last week, mm-hmm. and Nebuchadnezzar yeah. to actually do God's will. And the yeah. whole point is, whether persecution is really ramped up in Rome at this point or not, it's going to soon. Yeah. Persecution is ramping up across the Roman Empire. We know yeah. that. They've already been kicked out by the previous emperor. You know, I don't think Paul's under any illusion that like, oh, this Nero is going to be wonderful to us. He's not an idiot. Um, And yes, if there's a law that comes into conflict with conscience, then of course you have to break. And Paul readily does that. He doesn't seem to care about that. I think what he's saying is um, it doesn't the church no good to stop following the command of Jesus from the gospels. Because what's about to happen, if you put this in its time frame, what's about to happen within a decade or so is that Jerusalem and that part of the world is about to go to war against Rome that Jesus told them adamantly not to fight. Do not fight the war with Rome. I mean, that was, we saw that in the Gospel of Mark podcast, right? He said, forgive those who persecute. You pray for those who persecute. You turn the other cheek. And the immediate context of that, Jesus isn't just spouting sort of Zen Cohen universals. No. He's talking in the immediate context of these. The Roman Empire. Yeah, right, yeah. The Roman Empire. He says, literally, when you see wars and rumors of wars on the horizon, flee to the hills. Do not take up arms against Rome. Flee to the hills, which the early church does. Yeah. But what I think Paul is saying is that if you're facing persecution, and I, on one level, based again on the context, I really want him to be talking about the church here. Because part of the issue that has been coming up is we don't like certain members of the church don't like the governing authorities of the church. Mm-hmm. They don't like the bishops because they're not our ethnicity or they're not they're our Gentiles political leaning or, or they're yeah. Gentiles or oh, they're in whatever. the first century. You mean. In, in Rome, in this particular oh, okay. letter, mm-hmm. right? They don't like the governing authorities. And so on one level, and I don't think it's escaped Paul's sight that this actually applies in many levels. He is talking about civil government because he talks about taxes but, and, yeah, and having disorder. But is Paul therefore saying that, I mean, I, I appreciate the context, but is Paul therefore saying that the authority of the Roman Empire is derived from God? I'm hesitant to put it that way because I think he does seem to be the plain text reading of the text. So it, it, it has to do with what God's will is. You know, is this mm-hmm. actable? Is it permissive will? The point is, it's because of God that Caesar has power. Oh, if Caesar no has power, it's because from of God. God. In a certain sense, God is, has permitted these people to rule. Yeah. Which is, okay. it's, it feels different to me than say they, they are God ordained. And they are, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Was Pharaoh God ordained in the time of the Egyptians? Or the Exodus, rather. Oh. Yeah, God uses him. I mean, I, I suppose so. And I, I think Paul's point is, and again, I think this is as applicable now as it was then. We read the news. We look at what's happening in the church. At least I do. I don't know about you guys. I look at the news. I look at what's happening in the world. I look at what's happening in politics. I look at what's happening in the church. And I'm like, God, do you not see this? Like, are you going to do anything? And I don't think that I have to hold that Biden is, uh, derives his authority from God or that the United States Congress derives his authority from God, except by virtue of sort of God's permissive will. But that's not nothing. Yeah. That's not nothing. Yeah. yeah I guess that's, that's Paul's true. point. That's, that's right? fair. You're right. If it's there, it's because God allowed it to be there. Yeah. Because Paul has such an 
acute sense of God's will and I have that sense. and is working in the world. It's not an accident that they are there. I will say, I have that sense, like, you know, there are people who hold, I think erroneously, that the Holy Spirit chooses the Pope. I don't hold that because I don't think the church teaches that. Sure. But I do think that once the person possesses the office of Roman pontiff, whether it would have the person we would have voted for or not, he does hold the office by God's permissive will, and right. we owe him, therefore, Absolutely this right. filial obedience of a Catholic. But it's also them. not as if God just wakes up the next morning and he's like, what? They chose him? Like, that's not how it works, right? But I think sometimes we think of it that way. Like, God's surprised that, like, we have to tell God. We have to pray and tell God, do you not understand right. who's on the throne? Do you yeah. not understand who the emperor is? Do you not understand who the president is? Mm-hmm. God's like, I know who, it's, who it is. I, I'm well aware, and I'm in control of the whole situation. Yeah, that doesn't mean, though, that particular civic or ecclesiastical leaders couldn't be a bad choice. Absolutely. They yeah. probably are. I think Nero was horrible. Yeah. And yet, and yet God puts him on the throne. I think Nebuchadnezzar was horrible in the time of the Babylonians. And yet God actually uses him as his chosen instrument. Mm-hmm. So part of this is encouraging the church to have the wider view that God is always in control. One of the things it's doing is directly contradicting the Roman propaganda machine, which says effectively that, that it is emperor, the divine will yeah. of the emperor that puts him on the throne. Mm-hmm. He's like, actually, it's not. So we completely ripped down the imperial as, power. Because yeah. the emperor, like in the, in the, when we were doing the gospel of Mark, we were talking about the emperor claiming for himself the identity of the yeah, son of right. God. Is that still in vogue, so to speak, in this Yeah, time? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's in the background, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's saying that's actually not. It's actually God who does that. But again, I'm, I'm hesitant to parse out the kinds of will that God is, is well, let's performing do verse in this way. Two. Therefore, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed. <laughs> yeah. And those who oppose it will bring judgment to themselves. Yeah. Now, Paul is indifferent to civic authority when he perceives that it's totally right. But effectively, but he still acknowledges that it's because of God that it's there. Mm -hmm. So what Paul is arguing against is anarchy, is Christian anarchy. We're trying to actually convert the empire. We're trying to actually convince, we're proposing the gospel to the world and it doesn't do the gospel message any good to go out into the streets and riot about this. Mm. It just doesn't. We've already seen how that went when the Jews were actually kicked out by Claudius, you know, a couple years before this. And so what he's encouraging is Christians to actually live in their world and submit to the situation that God's actually put them in. Don't but, separate yourself from the community. Pay the dang taxes. But that, this, verse 6, the authorities are ministers of God. That's not, um, that's not easy, that's not easily sort of, um, looked at as, oh, no, this is The word is just... in the Greek is diakonos. Mm-hmm. They are the servants, servants of, God. of God. Oh, that oh, helps sorry. me very much. And remember, this is, not, really far, helpful, this is not far off from what he said a couple chapters before yeah. about the role of God using all of these pagan emperors to whatever will he wanted to, whether they realized it or not. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And again, that if, if you read that in a vacuum, and it sounds like Paul's just talking about submitting to your government, and you did not read the few verses before that talked about um, blessing those who persecute you and heaping kindness on those who hate you, yeah. which is markedly the Roman government, yeah. right? very clearly, then all of a sudden this just takes on a different life. Yeah. Again, I can't say I can understand 100% what Paul is saying here, but I think I understand the principles. I think I understand the basic premise that God is a God of order. He doesn't want you to just kind of go out into the streets and overthrow everything because it doesn't serve the gospel. Yeah. Because the kingdom that God has established is not the kingdom that you have to rip Caesar off his throne for. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of, I mean, what is, what is, so think about it on a very practical level, because what people want to do is revolt. People want to fight against the emperor. That's what the Jewish people in, in the Holy Land are wanting to do at this very time period. They're preparing for war. What is Rome awesome at? Rome is awesome at putting down revolutions. Rome loves it when people fight Rome Mm -hmm. because they're great at destroying that. Mm -hmm. What is Rome terrible at? 
people who don't fear them, people yeah. who don't revolt and actually care for the poor and the widows and walk a second mile with the Roman centurion yeah. that forced them to walk one and give them their cloak when they ask for their tunic as well. Rome has no capacity to deal with that. Rome, that's going to throw Rome upside down because they don't know how to deal with that kind of humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of humanity that's going to convert the Roman Empire, which is remarkable when you think of the audacity of the church to actually call itself the Roman Catholic Church, to take on the moniker of the very empire that persecuted them and put God to death. We're like, yeah, we're going to take the name because that's what that that's how seriously we take this. Yeah, it's the audacity of meekness. It's the audacity of meekness. And it's the audacity of recognizing that God is in control of this. And so I'm going to, I'm I going to do my really part. I think that's really important. For, for I don't think that can be overemphasized. I think we so often, we look at the, so many Christians, I talk to them, and I maybe I feel this temptation myself at times, look at the profound disorder of American civic life and culture and the degradation of human culture and these yeah. kinds of things. And like, we need to stand up and fight and that appeals to our passions and all of that. But I think yeah. Paul is laying out this fundamentally Christian way, which is to say we need to be um, servants. I think you're right. Thir chapter 13 is predicated on um, chapter 14 and um, excuse me, chapter 12. 12 yeah. And um, you know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And that is so much more, there's a tendency I think in America right now to, proffer a version of Christianity that in which Christianity is a sort of another player in the culture war. Yeah. And, um, you know, we need to be like this sort of, yeah, you know, yes, Jesus was meek, but he also turned over the tables and that, and of course that feels good to us and inflames our passions. I've heard like Christians that. say things like it's too late for that now. Right. Yeah. Like actually I, it's too with, late for us it's to too be late meek. for that. Yeah. yeah. It's too late to forgive our enemies. That time has passed. Yeah. I've heard people say that, which is, yeah. that's, that's really terrifying. Yeah. And to imagine how the early church would have felt about that. Yeah. Again, that's not to say that we don't resist unjust laws when we need to. Paul very clearly does. He goes to prison over it. Yeah. I mean, I think of Moses back in the book of the Exodus who goes out and sees the affliction of the Hebrew people. And remember, he looks this way and that and sees, is anybody going to stop this Israelite from being beaten to death? And seeing no one, he steps in and does it himself. So, I mean, this is this subject, the being subject to the governing authorities doesn't mean, well, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. Right. It doesn't mean that, but it just means be very careful with the way in which you try to fight the empire. Because the way in which you're called to fight the empire is to convert the empire, yeah. not to kill the empire, yeah. I guess, to put it tritely. So, yeah, and that's what takes us then effectively into chapter 14 and following. Welcome back, everybody, <laughs> to a little segment we're calling Question and Answer Time with Dr. Scott Powell. Question and response, I question, think, is the Question and response period with Thank Dr. You, Scott Kate. Powell. Because I don't know if I'll have the answer the, to you. Uh, the way this game works, Scott, is that uh, we, will, uh, we, we have asked uh, our listeners to give us questions, and you will give them responses. And we thank you for, for reaching out. A number of you, for, through a whole bunch of different means, reached out with some questions that uh, were really thoughtful. Yeah. Um, not brief. But very, very yeah. thoughtful. We're obviously not going to get to all of them, but we're going to get to a couple. And I have the chance to um, to uh, uh, ask the first one, and it's this. Romans is, which I didn't know, 
I would have thought before we started doing this study that if you have a New Testament book that's principally about Hebrew Christians, it would be the letter to the Hebrews. And yet, here I am learning that the letter to the Romans is principally about all these questions related to Israel. Yeah, I'm, that's fair. I've, that, that surprised me, and I'm glad to learn that, but it made me sort of wonder, how does what St. Paul says uh, about Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the Church, the Church and Israel, olive trees and grafting, how does it sort of make it into what the Second Vatican Council says about um, about Judaism and Nostraitate, which is a sort of decree on on um, the Church and, and other religions. And other religions right. Yeah, Nostraitate is, I believe, is the shortest of all the documents of Vatican II. This is all, it's also alluded, it's not even just alluded to, it's mentioned in Lumen Gentium as well. So Lumen Gentium does um, talk about our very unique, in, in the context of talking about the Church's relationship with, um, I forget the terminology, non-Christian religions, yeah. basically. Uh, it talks about a, a, a special, is priority maybe the right word? Just a special filial relationship that we have with the Jewish people that's distinct from the relationship we have with all, with all other uh, non-Christian peoples. Um, and Nostra Aetete kind of expands on it, although not a ton. There's only a couple of paragraphs that deal with this. And and the gist of them, uh, I'm just going to read you a couple lines as kind of highlights. Um, it says that the... Uh, uh, the Church of Christ acknowledges that according to God's saving design. So I, I, I'm reminded a lot of Paul's language here, and I think they're pulling from Paul's language. The Church acknowledges that according to God's saving design, so in other words, according to the story of salvation history, according to the covenants that were given, the beginnings of her faith and her election are all found already among the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets. She professes that all who believe in Christ, Abraham's sons, according to the faith, that's actually Galatians, but he talks about in Romans as well, are included in the same patriarch's call. And likewise, that the salvation of the church is mysteriously foreshadowed by the chosen people's exodus from the land of bondage. We talked a few weeks ago how the story of the exodus is very much in the background of this because the exodus forms the precursor for what Jesus has done. So this is what Nostra Aetate is pointing to. Uh, she says, to do the church therefore cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people whom God in his inexpressible mercy concluded the ancient covenant, nor can she forget that she draws sustenance from the root of that well-cultivated olive tree. Mm, there it is, Kate. Yeah. Onto which we have been, onto which have been grafted the wild shoots, the Gentiles. So indeed the church believes that by his cross, Christ, our peace reconciled the Jews and Gentiles, making both one in himself. So basically it begins by summarizing Romans, quite yeah. frankly, it really yeah. draws yeah. on this. And then the last thing it sort of says is that uh, as Holy Scripture testifies, like Romans, um, a lot of Jerusalem didn't recognize the time for his visitation. So again, it follows the same sort of structure as Romans, that this is what we believe. This is the course of salvation history. This is how God has done this. What about those who didn't believe? What do yeah. we do next? So it takes the same structure. Um, nor did the Jews in large number accept the gospel. Indeed, uh, a few opposed its spreading. I'm talking about Romans 11 again. Nevertheless... God holds the Jewish people most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent of the gifts nor he makes, nor the calls he issues, such as the witness of the apostle. That's Romans again. In the company with the prophets and the same apostle, the church awaits the day known to God alone on which all peoples will address the Lord in a single voice and serve him shoulder to shoulder. So again, kind of referencing Romans, but it doesn't say a whole lot more than that. It basically says, look, we understand that a lot of our Jewish brethren didn't accept the gospel. Nevertheless, that doesn't negate them being the chosen people. It doesn't cancel out the covenants and this reality of them being the chosen people. 
Um, however, I mean, honest to goodness, I was a little frustrated kind of going back and rereading yeah. this because it doesn't say a lot. Yeah. It says, look, this is the reality, which maybe, maybe is good. It doesn't, it doesn't try to whitewash it or anything, but I guess I'm comforted. It doesn't try to say something artificial. Yeah. It simply says, look, this is the reality. Yeah. There are certain truths that we know. We know yeah. that God established this through the old Testament. We know this is how the gospel comes. Yeah. This is who Jesus is. Yeah. All of these things, the patriarchs, they yeah. all point to this. We are the olive tree. Israel is the olive tree. We're grafted yeah. on. We look forward to this day that somehow God will mysteriously bring all peoples together, including yeah. the Israelites, and they'll serve him. And we look forward to that. The end. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, I, I kind of like it. I mean, it seems like it's kind of brushing it, but at the same time, I'm, I'm comforted it doesn't try to say something that we don't really understand. It doesn't try to yeah, manufacture right, exactly. some nicety. Yeah, yeah. there's some it's uncertainty just, this is, here. This is what there's it says. some difficulty here and... But it says the fundamental truths. Yeah. They are, there. there is a different relationship that the yeah. church has with the Jewish people. Yeah. Um, there's not a two covenant system. There's not different means in coming into the family. Like Christians are baptized yeah. and Jewish people by means of their ethnicity. Yeah. There's one baptism. Um, so it doesn't say, well, because, you know, people have posited, well, maybe there's just different routes to salvation for each. Yeah. The church says, no, that's, that's not what we believe Jesus has done. Yeah. But at the same time, they're still our family. They're yeah. still our ancestors. They still yeah. hold a special place in the heart of God and yeah. hopefully in the heart of the people of God. Yeah. Um, and we're left to hope. Yeah. And and that's about it, which yeah. again, I kind of find comfort in the brevity because yeah. it doesn't try to manufacture something artificial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So um, one question we came in this, I, I thought this was relatively straightforward. We'll see if it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, this person was intrigued to hear that the Hebrew language used letters of the alphabet yeah, as that's numbers. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. yeah, you were telling us that. Yeah. And it's, um, and, and he gives a very spe specific example, he or she, I'm not sure. Well, let's hear the question. For example, when the Old Testament, well, it's not exactly a question, but there's a question mark a on it. <laughs> For example, when the Old Testament text reads that 10,000 of the enemy were killed, question mark. So presumably, oh, presumably what does it mean, say? How do they write? How do you write? How do you write ten thousand? The the concept, by the way, of um, the idea of letters as numbers shouldn't be that foreign. Because Roman us. numerals, it's really it, it it's similar to Roman numerals, right? So we we do this well, not all the time, I guess, but most of us are familiar with. When Roman we numerals. need to know what Super Bowl it is or something, <laughs> right? Right. Now it's different Man, because the more Super Bowls they get, the trickier it gets for me. Or I, Roman numerals are the you're worst. You're somewhere, and you, in a cornerstone, there's a Roman numeral of the year of the building, and the person was like, "Well, you read Latin. What year is that?" And I'm like, "Oh, oh boy, long time ago, <laughs> long time ago." Boy. Yeah, and and what's easier about this than Roman numerals is that Roman numerals it's it's basically a different alphabet. It's not it's they're the same characters, but it's a different alphabet than we deal with. Hebrew just uses the same alphabet, but numbers equal letters. So Aleph equals one, Bet equals two. Um, Gimel equals three, Dalet equals four, and so on so and so forth. So how do you make 10,000? So 10,000, so what you do, there's different is ways there of rendering. Is there a thousand place, or is it just... There is. What you do to make a thousand, you put a left and you add an apostrophe. And that means 1,000. And that 1, adds the thousand place, right? Okay. And then I think if you add two apostrophes or an apostrophe on one side, it becomes 100,000. So it's simply the letter, and you simply add apostrophes in different so places to render. So how do you make 10,000? So 10,000 would be uh, Yud apostrophe. Oh, so okay. the number for the letter for, for 10, 10, 10 and then an apostrophe. apostrophe. Yep. Okay. So you'd apostrophe. Wow, that's interesting. Which is actually fairly straightforward. Now do 70 times 7. <laughs> I, I will not. <laughs> I will not do that. Um, well, again, that I do have a question though. How do you do 70? 7 and 10 next to each other? Uh, 70, you would do ayin. There actually is a, a letter value for the number 70. It's the word, it's the letter ayin. Oh, okay. Ayin times. Times what? Times 9? 
Oh, Ayin times seven, seven, seven. Uh, which would be a Zayin. So, um, oh, that's interesting. Ayin times Zayin is that? One yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head how you would render the the actual equation sure, of yeah. this times this. And again, remember, Jesus is speaking Being, in Aramaic, writing in yeah, Greek. Yeah, I know that he wasn't. So doing I'm it. just saying. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Although he is referencing um, Lamech yeah. in the book of Genesis, who kills. Uh, he, he says, remember, he killed that guy who, for looking at him wrong. He's the descendant of Cain. Remember in the lineage of Cain and Abel? Jesus did that? No, no, no. No, in Cain and Abel's time, there's a guy named... Oh, you guys don't <laughs> no, know this? Jesus didn't. No, Jesus didn't do it. You guys, this is really important. So oh. this came up in uh, the readings of Mass a few weeks back. So 70 times 7 is, an, up, is a literary reference. Yeah, it totally is. So... Um, after Cain kills Abel, okay. remember they have another kid named Seth, yep. and then we get the family lineages of Cain and Seth, uh-huh. um, kind of the good side of the family and the kind of rotten side of the family. Seth is the rotten side. No, Seth is the, the kind oh, of holy, okay. they walks with God got it, section. Got it, got it, got it. Cain and his children follow themselves. Yeah. They're all about themselves. And they're sort of epitomized by a guy named Lamech in the sixth generation. And as it's going through this genealogy, it says Lamech, took two wives, which is a bad sign. Okay. And one day he like killed a guy for looking at him wrong. Okay. And he came home and he bragged to his wives how he killed this guy. And he's like, if Cain is avulged sevenfold, Lamech is, avulged, se- is avenged seven times sevenfold. And he talks about how he is, yeah, like worse than Cain. But it's, it's hatred Whoa. and his being all about himself is seven times seven. Mm. And Jesus actually uses that reference in reverse to talk not about vengeance being seven times seven, which is the biblical reference, but about forgiveness being seven times seven. This is the kind of stuff, this is the like, but it's cool. holy crappiest stuff, like holy crap, the most holy crap stuff of like. It's gotta be a better way to say that. Yeah, there is, like, whoa. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of cool. But again, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how Hebrew renders that. You know what I'd like to do sometime? I don't. Maybe as a sort of bonus episode of this is, I'd like to do a a mystery science theater version of The Chosen, where we watch the chosen and then you just tell I us think Bible Formed facts. does that. Do they really? Yeah. No, um, I don't mean like I really I don't love mean like commentary. Put, no, I don't. Oh, you don't, don't mean commentary. I don't mean that we put on ties and say like, and now some lessons. I mean mystery science theater. Through th- like I wanted to sit there. So our silhouettes. Yeah, and you're like, actually, <laughs> this comes from them. Can I confess something to you? Yeah, I love the chosen. Yeah, I know. I know you do. Oh, okay. Well, you're a chosen man. It just seems like you're. I've never seen it myself. No, fair enough. Yeah, I expected to hate it. I expected to hate it. Because I was like, oh, I was not going to do it right. And I, I'm really moved by it. Cool. Hmm. Take and it for what you will. What's, it, what's next? Uh, another question we had. Someone asked about your doctoral <laughs> dissertation on Romans. Yeah, there's a doctoral dissertation. Yeah. Oh, JD's pulling it off the shelf. You Would just you mind giving us it. the gist of that? An environmental ethic for the end of the world, an ecological midrash on Romans 8, 19 through 22. Would you read the back cover, JD? I will, but first I want to read oh, the m- most beautiful part. Oh. Are you acknowledged? No. Oh. I didn't know I'm grateful to my parents and my wonderful, beautiful, and patient wife for enduring and supporting me through the many hours that went into this work. Thank you for your patience with me and for always being my cheering section. You remind me that the world around us needs protecting. Okay. Is there a place for religious texts in today's global environmental conversation? Some have claimed over the centuries that the Bible has given human license to devastate the world of nature. Can those same texts be a source of ecological healing? This book investigates Romans 8, 19 through 22, Paul's enigmatic passage about creation groaning out in travail, which comes at the conclusion of his long Christological discourse. His inclusion of nature in the Christ event is both unprecedented and has baffled scholars for centuries. Could Genesis provide the explanation? What does that mean? Um... It, it, it focuses on one particular verse, Romans 8, 19 through 22, which is that weird passage about creation is groaning out in travail, waiting mm-hmm. for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, again, it really has baffled scholars uh, because 
basically the question is, what is he doing? There's so many Romans commentaries that just kind of skip over that. Yeah. Um, so what I try to suggest is that he's doing a bit of a midrash on Romans chapter three. And the whole dissertation is formed around these four relationships, right? The Genesis 1 through 3 is formed around these four relationships that with the, uh, the uh, human beings in God, human beings in ourselves, human beings and the people around us, and human beings with creation. And that the original sin causes them to fall subsequently one by one, culminating in the breakdown of creation, creation opposing humanity. Um, and so then if the Christ event reconciles human beings back to God, then the progression should invert itself and we should be reconciled back to ourselves, which is what Romans does, right? Reconciled yeah. with each other. And then the logical climax of Paul's Christological thought is that now creation itself is groaning out to be uh, released from its captivity, from its subjection, which Adam caused it back in Genesis 1. I love what I'm you sorry, Genesis 3. I love what you say here um, in chapter 5. What I've tried to show is that according to Paul's theology, a theology which has helped to shape all of Christian thought from its earliest days, redeemed baptized believers, that's us, have an imperative to act as Christ toward creation. What does that mean? Looking back to Adam, who is made, according to Genesis 1.26, in God's image and likeness, one finds clues towards a what a Christian environmental ethic might look like. Adam named the animals. He was called to till and keep the garden, to make it fruitful and to protect it from danger. In short, Adam was called to be an extension of God's sovereignty towards the non-human world. That's pretty good. Yeah, well done, sir. Yeah, it's not bad. Next. One that I found interesting, also very long, but I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll try to synthesize this as best I can because I think I do think this is an interesting question, specific to Romans. Um, so remember, in uh, at the end of Romans, Paul gives this kind of hello, say hello yeah. to so and so, say hello to such and such. Um, so this person talks about uh, a person named Junia and Andronicus. They mm -hmm. actually named his daughter Junia, oh, which that's is a very nice. beautiful that's name. Cute. He says, I, as I understand, I find some controversy in the reading of Junia as being an apostle. Which is the suggestion, as, as some translations of, of verse 7 says. So it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and my fellow prisoners. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. And so he says, it's my understanding that the simplest reading of this suggests that Paul is referring to Junia as an apostle along with Andronicus. Now, it's a little bit unclear actually in the text if they're both male, if Junia is a female. There's a little bit of the jury's a little bit out on that. Junia, in my little bit of internet research, which is internet research is always a dangerous thing, Junia has become a bit of a champion for the female priesthood. Mm. Um uh, among certain uh, quarters of the Catholic world, but not, but not the guy that named his daughter that we don't. No, 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 no. Yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. not. It's actually, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful name. But I don't think there's any reason to believe that she's an apostle. Yeah, could it so be? It says, could it be more like, um, like, okay, I'm going to go to the USCCB meeting next week, and if let's say you said JD me a is text, well known among the USCCB, among the bishops, right? Not that JD is <laughs> not but well let's respected, say, but you, let's say you texted me <laughs> and you were like, um, and you were like, uh, um, send the greetings of our friend Chris Stefanik, who is well known among the bishops, or something yeah, like that. Exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, right. So you could you could read it as she's they are well known as apostles, yeah. or simply well known by the yeah, apostles, yeah. and if. There was, which I, I, there, there wasn't. If there was send, a female, send the greetings of my pal Jim Beam, well known among the apostles. <laughs> <laughs> but if there was a female apostle in this way, uh, this is, by the way, the one and only reference to these people. There's no other texts that refer to them in the Bible or extra biblically. Mm. And if there was a female apostle and she was the only one, you'd think that there'd be mention somewhere else of her, which there's not anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's what it's saying, although there are ways in which the church has used the apostle fairly loosely. I don't think she was a bishop. She wasn't one of the um, um, 
yeah, the, the, the original 12 bishops of the church. But sometimes apostle can be used loosely. Uh, Mary Magdalene is sometimes mm-hmm. called the apostle to the apostles, right? Mm-hmm. Apostolo simply meaning somebody who Someone is sent, sent. Yeah, out, right. right? So I think there's, there's a couple ways around this. We don't know anything else about these people. I think in the Eastern church, they're considered saints. They're, mm. they're canonized in the Eastern church. I don't know if there are Catholic rites that accept them as saints or not. I'm not, I'm just not Could totally it also, sure. Is it also possible that Junia is like a, is a, my Bible has a little note that says maybe the name Junia is a man's name, Junia. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we're not sure. Yeah. That's what the, the manuscript tradition isn't super clear on. If you have more questions for Sunday school, then you can leave them in the comments and Kate will forward them to Dr. Powell. And, um, if he's if he's able to, he'll he'll get back to you as best as he can. Uh, and Dr. Powell is going to be pretty soon on a very special episode of another podcast called The Pillar Podcast. I'm really looking forward to having him as a guest there. So you can look forward to hearing that as well. And we'll, maybe we can talk about some of those questions as well there. Uh, thank you guys so much both for this. This has been a great season of Sunday School. I'm so invigorated by it. I, Scott, thank you so much for opening the Word of God to us. And Kate, thanks so much for being my... Um, my uh, classmate my classmate, and, yeah. yeah, I love having Would Kate here. This yeah. has been so much fun. Is my question? <laughs> is it I your already, Bible? Is it your Bible? Because don't do that. Don't do that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we uh, will be excited for another sun- season of Sunday school soon. We hope you keep listening. We hope you pass this podcast on to your friends. Yeah, please do. And um, if you love this podcast, then give it a great rating in um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you don't love this podcast, you don't have to give it a rating. That's no, totally you cool. Really don't. Just too. keep it to yourself. Yeah, just keep, keep it to yourself. yourself. So like just, your mother told yeah, you. If you don't if you love don't this podcast and you're still listening now, what are you yeah, doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Go home. Okay. It's like Ferris Bueller's yeah, Day Off. That's right. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and NJD Production. Our Sunday School teacher is uh, Dr. Scott Powell. My classmate is our executive producer, Kate Oliveira, and I'm J.D. Flynn, and we'll be back with another season of Sunday School soon.